This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Vinigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Richard Martin. He is the Antony and Isabel Robitschek Professor in Classics at Stanford University. Before joining Stanford in 2000, he taught classics for 18 years at Princeton University. Among his major publications are Healing, Sacrifice, and Battle, Amakania and Related Concepts in Early Greek Poetry, and The Language of Heroes, Speech, and Performance in the Iliad. He has also published books on general audiences and a number of articles on Greek, Latin, and Irish literature. So I'm grateful to invite Martin in our discussion of Homer's great epic poem, The Iliad. So welcome, Thank Professor Thank you very Martin. much. I'd like to ask you to give a quick summary of The Iliad for our listeners, please. Uh, well, of course, it's uh, 15,000 poetic lines long, and probably if it was performed live at a pretty good pace, it would take about 24 hours, all told. So my summary is going to have to skip over a lot. But essentially, it focuses on a few days in the last year of the war between the Greeks and the Trojans at Troy. Um, the backstory the audience, I'm sure, would have known in antiquity was that Paris of Troy, uh, under the influence of the goddess Aphrodite, was able to abduct or elope with Helen of Greece, who happened to be married to Menelaus, who happened to be the brother of Agamemnon, a powerful king. Um, the backstory again, is that the Greeks go after the Trojans in order to recover Helen, and they lay siege to the city of Troy, which is in what is now uh, northwest Turkey. Um, they lay siege for nine years, but they can't make any headway. So in the final year of the war, when the poem opens, uh, Achilles, who was a great Greek warrior, um, has a confrontation with Agamemnon, who is technically his commander-in-chief on the Greek side. They clash because uh, Apollo has sent a plague, which is killing off people and animals in the Greek camp. Uh, Now, why did the god Apollo send the plague? As the poem tells us at the very beginning... It's because the father of a woman on the Trojan side, a young woman, has come to the camp of the Greeks to to ransom his daughter. The daughter was captured in a battle down the coast. Uh, The father is a priest of Apollo, so he wants to give money to get the woman back, the equivalent of money. Of course, they didn't have coinage in those days. Um, Agamemnon, who is the leader of the Greeks, refuses and sends the priest of Apollo away and says, never come back here again. So he threatens the priest of Apollo. A bad move, because then the priest uh, calls on his personal god Apollo, and Apollo strikes the Greeks with a plague. So that's the situation as the poem opens. Achilles says to Agamemnon, you know, we have to figure out what's wrong. Why is this plague afflicting us? And with the help of one of the seers on the Greek side, they determined that it was because Apollo was angry at uh, Agamemnon's behavior. So after some pressure, Agamemnon says, okay, I'll give back the girl that I have as my personal consort, this captive woman, 
whose name is uh, Chryseis. But you know what? I'm going to take your captive woman, Achilles. Her name is Briseis, and he does so. Um, at that point, and we're still in book one of the 24 books, uh, Achilles says to Agamemnon, well, if you take away my prize of honor that the other Greeks have given me because of my fighting prowess and everything I've done, I'm not going to fight anymore. Why are we here anyways? We're fighting over a woman that was taken away from her husband, and now you're taking away my war bride from me. So I'm out of it. I'm going to go home. Uh, I'm going to let you Greeks get slaughtered, and then you'll see how much that uh, you depend on me. So that's it in a nutshell. And then the problem is that the Greeks do start getting slaughtered. It helps that Achilles' mother, Thetis, is a goddess, and she has some favors to cash in with Zeus, the chief god, and so she begs Zeus to let the Greeks be killed, to let them start losing, so that her son can be honored and have everything restored to him. For the stretch of the next nine or so books, Greeks are getting killed in various creative ways. There are all sorts of other subplots that I can't get into, but focusing especially on another couple, Hector and his wife Andromache, and he's actually the good family guy, and he's a Trojan, and we see a lot of him. The Greeks go to Achilles' hut and beg him to enter the battle after so many have been killed after uh, a couple of days, and he still refuses and says, you know, I've learned that there's nothing um, so precious as a man's life. You know, you can give me all of the tripods and land and serving women and everything else that you want. I'm not going to rejoin the battle. So the war continues. The Greeks are getting increasingly desperate. Finally, and now we're up to book 16 of the poem, the best friend of Achilles, who's a slightly older man called Patroclus, his kind of tentmate and companion, Patroclus comes and personally begs Achilles, please enter, all of our friends and companions are being killed. You have to go stop Hector, who's uh, with his Trojans just crushing the Greeks. And Achilles still is too disgusted with his fellow Greeks to agree. Instead he says, you know what, you dress up in my armor, Patroclus, and you go pretend that you're me, and that will scare them off for a little while. Patroclus does that. However, Patroclus is not as good as Achilles, and he fairly soon gets killed by Hector, the chief Trojan, uh, who strips the armor off of Patroclus and puts it on himself. And so now we have this wonderful visual setup that the guy who is the chief enemy of Achilles looks exactly like Achilles because he's got his armor on stripped from Patroclus. Okay, we're getting to the end of the poem in this the 30-second summary. Um, this is the thing that motivates Achilles to rejoin the fight. Not any kind of consideration for Agamemnon or the Greeks in general or honor or anything else. It's the fact that his friend was killed. So he's filled with a different kind of anger now. He enters the battle like some kind of uh, raging god, and he kills Trojans left and right. Um, the river is so choked with corpses that it rises up against him. It kind of takes human form and tries to crush Achilles. Uh, Achilles is rescued from that. 
And finally, he, with the help of the goddess Athena, I have to say, it traps and kills Hector in front of all of the troops. And, and so uh, Achilles himself, by the end of the poem, has survived, but he's still so angry at the Trojans for having done what they did that he takes the corpse of Hector, ties it to his chariot, and drives it around the city of Troy every day. Uh, the corpse is miraculously preserved by the gods, who even the gods think that this is excessive behavior on the part of the hero Achilles. Finally, Zeus says, get me Thetis, the mother of Achilles. Thetis is told, tell your son to let Hector go. And it's all arranged by the gods that Priam, the elderly father of Hector, comes now to supplicate Achilles, just the way that the Greeks did uh, half a poem before, and asks for the corpse of his son, the, the corpse of Hector that Achilles has been keeping in his hut. Achilles in a, a wonderful, uh, humane moment, recognizes, looking at Priam, um, his own father, and thinks of his own father back home, and they weep together, and Achilles relents and lets the corpse go. And then the last scene we get in the poem is Hector's corpse being burnt back in Troy, that's where they do things, and uh, laments by three women, his mother, his wife, and ultimately Helen who uh, tells in her wonderful lament what a humane person Hector was. So that's the poem. It's very strange. It's not a celebration of war. It's not a celebration of the Greeks. It's, if anything, a recognition that there can be some little bit of humanity even between sworn enemies. Yeah. Thank you so much for your summary. It's still very much a summary, but thank you so much for it. And I want to introduce my readers with the first few lines of the Iliad, both in the English and, if possible, in the Greek. I'm not a Greek expert, but I'll try at it. The, the English version is here. Wrath, sing goddess of the ruinous wrath of Peleus' son Achilles that inflicted woes without number upon the Achaeans, hurled forth to Hades many strong souls of warriors and rendered their bodies prey for the dogs, for all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished. Sing, for when they first two stood in conflict, Atreus' son, lord of men, and godlike Achilles. And in the Greek it says, Forgive the sketchiness of the reading. I don't know Greek very well. I'm just... Well, that was uh, that was fine. Thanks. So, which also brings me to the point I wanted to discuss. How does oral poetry and Homeric conventions go into the making of this poem? Because when I'm reading this poem, I notice that there's a speech that's said by one character, and it's repeated by another character almost word for word. Sometimes they'll add a line or so to vary it a bit. Exactly. There are all kinds of conventions in this poetry, which for a long time were recognized. I mean, even in antiquity, people knew that um, you know heroes had uh, specific epithets or adjectives like podas ocus achilles, swift-footed Achilles, or polymetis odysseus, Odysseus with much cunning intelligence. 
Um, they just thought this is the way that the poetry went. And the kind of uh, thing that we get used to in listening to reading English ballads or, frankly, uh, modern uh, rap, which has a lot of kind of repeated and sometimes predictable phrases. Uh, it wasn't really until the late 19th and 20th century that people started asking more precisely, well, uh, you know, why do we sometimes have Achilles called swift-footed, poros ocus, and sometimes called glorious, dios? Is the poet trying to make a point here? And it was actually an American scholar, a young guy, he was in his early 20s, uh, who figured it out. His name was Milman Parry, P-A-R-R-Y. He graduated from uh, Berkeley, got his M.A. at Berkeley, and then went to Paris, because that's where the major Homerists of the time were studying. And this was in the early 1920s. Uh, Parry, for his thesis put together in a very engineering-like fashion, and his family were were actually engineers out of Oakland, California. Um, He he put together very scientific charts and charts and charts that showed that, get this, for every hero and god and heroine and goddess in the Iliad and the Odyssey, there is almost always one and only one adjective phrase, like swift-footed or having much cunning intelligence, for every possibility in the poetic line. Uh, Now, you have to understand that the Homeric poetic line is what's called a dactylic hexameter, as you know, and you you read it perfectly, um, which has a series of six dactyls, uh, the poetic... um, quantitative meter that goes long syllable short short so bump 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 in order to fill out that line um, there the poet has at his or her disposal because there were female poets too um, a full range of nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs but Parry found they also had this complete economical set so that you didn't have to ever fumble. If you had a bit of the line and you needed to fill it out, and the bit that you had was bump, 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 at the very end, you'd go for dios achilos. If, on the other hand, you had a slightly longer segment at the end of the line, after you had said something like, uh, so-and-so was killed by bump, 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 todos ocus achilos would be your choice. So you see what I'm saying, that there's a different kind of phrase to slot in for every major figure, depending on where you happen to be. So Perry says, why would anybody ever have that? How could any one poet ever have constructed that? This would be impossible. Um, It must be an art form that was generated over generations, over centuries, where, in a traditional art form, People, a series of poets, poets and their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, developed a kind of uh, system for composing this kind of poetry. Okay? I hope there's not too much detail, but it it fascinates me to retell the story every time, because it's a great discovery story. It's one of these great 20th century breakthroughs. Yeah. Um, He then, and his thesis defense explained his findings about this very economical and extensive system of epithets, of nouns and adjectives. 
And one of the people at the, the thesis defense in Paris said, oh, you know what, this reminds me a lot of what's going on among illiterate, non-writing, uh, non-reading poets in uh, what was then Yugoslavia, uh, the, the former Yugoslavia, as we call it now. Harry then took a major leap. He decided, with the help of some grants and an old uh, model Ford and uh, big, clunky recording machine to go to Bosnia uh, and Herzegovina and record these oral poets. So these were poets who composed uh, epics in a South Slavic language, which used to be called Serbo-Croatian, now it's called either Serbian or Croatian or Bosnian. Um, bottom line, what Perry discovered is that these poets were using the same kind of systems in order to compose their poetry orally. So here's the, the two-part discovery. First, Perry figures out, hey, there's a whole system that nobody has suspected. It's economical. must be traditional. And secondly, ah, it's not just traditional. It's in order to enable people, without the use of writing, to compose 10,000-line epics orally, on the fly. So... You every time you performed one of these poems, as Kyrie figured out in the former Yugoslavia, it would be slightly different. Be different from the one that you did the night before, or the week before, or the year before. And there would be lots of poets doing different epics in different lengths and different uh, levels of sophistication when it came to ornamenting and style. So all of a sudden, there's this uh, breakthrough vision that what we call Homer, the great written epic, and people think of it as the beginning of literature, is actually pre-literature. It's actually the product of an oral tradition. That's the only way to explain these kind of uh, intricate conventional systems. It, it, okay, that's, that's the theory in a, in a nutshell, uh, yeah. kind of big nutshell. Um, so the next question, of course, is, well, what difference does it make if it's oral poetry? Um, and it, it, there began a kind of industry after Parry and the writing of his uh, associate, Albert Lord. Uh, Albert Lord I knew at Harvard, um, who worked with Parry in the 30s and, and later worked in uh, former Yugoslavia in the 50s, uh, wrote a breakthrough book called The Singer of Tales, which is still available, second edition, 2000, uh, first edition, 1960. And there, he made lots of comparisons between the Odyssey, the Iliad, and poems like Beowulf, the old English epic. So what happened with Parry and Lord's discoveries is that it opened a, a vast new horizon where we can compare Homeric poetry with all kinds of other epics in the world, see how they work at a very technical level, but think of them as parts of a daily oral performance culture. And, and these other cultures most often have no uh, written literature at all. It's purely a kind of grassroots oral production. Hmm. Let me pause there and see what kind of questions come up. Yeah, that's quite a good, interesting thing. Thank you so much for sharing about it. I mean, and I think that considering how it could seem ready-made at times, it's such an original epic, and parts of me think that this was indeed a single master poet who came at the end of a long epic tradition and wrote the culmination of epic poetry, the best, never to be matched, not even by later epics. And I tend to see Homer as like one master poet who 
if he didn't write it himself, at least had someone write it for him. And it definitely feels to me like a written work in some ways because it has round characters and it's very developed and has this great literary architecture. Well, you know, we could have a debate about that. And I agree uh, 95% with what you said because it does have fully rounded characters. It does have a, a beautiful architecture. But it's simply our literary prejudice. We're on this side of the Great Divide. Um, there's nothing to say that you could not do that in an oral culture. Um, one other thing I have to throw in here, we know that these poems became the basis of competitions between um, performing poets back in the 7th and 6th century B.C., especially in Athens. And so when we say the one great poet, Homer, did it, um, it's okay to think of a genius figure, but that's the result of generations of poets up to, let's call him Homer, uh, who are refining the story, and here's the kicker, expanding it. So one of the amazing things about the Homeric epics is that they're so big. They would oh, yeah. take about three days, right? To uh, it, it, It's been determined that, you know, you could do this in like three days of performance, eight hours a day. Um, that's probably the result of this kind of expansive uh, festival-related aesthetic. Uh, yeah. And Athens, we know, sponsored that kind of competition. So it's hard to think of a parallel in, in say, American European culture. Um, Indic culture, frankly, is a much better analog, where there are still long recitations of uh, Ramayana and Mahabharata uh, and other Rama epics, um, and explanations about them done in festival contexts. Yeah. And so I want to move away from the oral poetry convention and talk about some of the themes behind the Iliad. Some of the things I've noticed as I've read it twice to three times is it's so focused on heroism and it also focused on some of the basic relationships of human society, man and wife, father and son, father and daughter even to some degree, king mm -hmm. and servant, leader and follower. And it's basically capturing the essence of life in a society that's at war. And, of course, we have an idea that the Odyssey is more comprehensive, and it probably is, but at the same time, I think we tend to overlook the comprehensiveness that the Iliad gives us in terms of how it portrays human relationships, and I'll get to this later, how it portrays even women. Yeah, I already love your, your formulations with the series of kind of uh, binaries or dyads that the poem kind of pivots on. Uh, and I, I think there are those and more, as you say, there's slavery, there are male and women, there are uh, masters and servants, there's uh, companions. And the whole idea of are companions equal or is this sort of one dominant in the relationship? Yeah. Like in Patroclus and Achilles, I mean, Patroclus is supposed to be seen as the wiser person, and he's a little older than Achilles, but Achilles is clearly the greater warrior, and he, in this sense he has more power and yes. kind of command. He even is able to command even the old man, Phoenix, who comes with him, apparently. Yep, and you remember the simile at the very beginning of Book 16, when Patroclus comes to beg Achilles to enter the war and save the Greeks. Uh, you remember the simile? He's yeah, I remember. As... I, re I can read it. Yep. Why are Let's you tearful? Why are you tearful, Patroclus, like a foolish girl who runs after her mother demanding to be picked up grasping her dress and holds back as she hurries and looks at her weeping until she is picked up 
Like her, Patroclus, you let your soft tear fall. It, exactly. That, that's exactly the image that we get, that Patroclus is like a young girl clinging to uh, his mother. And there was an excellent article a few years ago by a fellow classicist named Kathy Galsa, uh, who pointed out that the image is not a sweet image of a little girl clinging to the mother. We know from Homer and other poems that that's an image of people fleeing from war. So it's like a refugee family, and the little girl is in danger of being left behind, and the mother has to grab her before they both get killed. Yeah. So there's even more resonance to that image. Yeah, there is a bit of a clue there. Holds back as she hurries. She's hurrying from what? She's probably hurrying from a burning city. Yet for some reason, I didn't necessarily think of refugees when I'm reading the Odyssey or the Iliad. I think of it when I'm reading Virgil's epic poem, the Aeneid, for sure. Because being a refugee doesn't seem to be as much a stated option for me in the Iliad. I mean, there's option either you're free or your your day of freedom is gone and you're enslaved to another warlord. Yeah, but if I could intervene on that one, I think you're exactly right. It's not a big issue, but it turns out the backstory of so many of these people is, is not that their whole community was uprooted. I think you're exactly right. That doesn't happen. Uh, if there's no community that's really uprooted in either the Iliad or the Odyssey, but individuals like Patroclus happen when you find out about their backstory, they have to have left their community oh, yeah. because they killed somebody. Oh yeah, a lot of the backstories within the Iliad, and I'll get back to this later, seem to mention I was in this place until I killed some guy or I was accused of killing yeah. this guy, then they had to run for my life and be some other warrior for some other dude. Uh-huh, exactly. Yeah, let me get to the moment. I'm skipping ahead to the one where Patroclus speaks. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, and I think what we're doing, frankly, as you look, is is a wonderful continuation of what people have done since the 7th century B.C. with these poems. They become, just the way that, like, Star Wars becomes in our culture, something that everybody can make reference to and think about and, and debate. So it's a wonderful kind of social good that we've uh, continued to spread through the world. Yeah. Let's see. I think I found it in Book 23 when Patroclus is mentioning... When Minoetius brought me there from Opolis when I was little, and into your house by reason of a baneful manslaying on that day when I killed the son of Amphidamus, I was a child only, nor intended it, but was angered over a dice game. There the writer Peleus, Peleus being the father of Achilles, took me into his own house and brought me carefully up and named me to be your henchman. This is Patroclus' ghost speaking, and yeah. reminding Achilles yeah. that Achilles should do all the proper rituals for him. Exactly, and it turns out that he was a, a killer as a child, accidentally killed a guy, a kid, over a dice game. Um, and in a way, the you know the best a kind of guarantee that you're going to be a, a powerful warrior in the future is that even as a child in this culture, you've got kind of aggressive tendencies. Um, and that also it's the, the most common means of motivation between one city-state and another is to... Uh, be exiled because it killed somebody. Yeah. And, of course, it's fascinating to see how, as you mentioned, even the enemies could be kind of human 
And the Iliad doesn't seem to have this good evil binary thing in the same way that you might see to some extent in the Aeneid, but a lot of it also in Dante's The Divine Comedy and Paradise Lost and a bunch of other Italian epic poems from the Renaissance era where you have the good Christians versus the evil Muslims. Here you mm-hmm. have like the Trojans who are trying to live versus the Achaeans who are in a sense trying to live as well. Mm-hmm. And none of them really I want think- to fight in the war. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I were to ask you um, which character you prefer as just in in human terms, um, is it Hector or Achilles? I think Achilles, albeit I admire Hector as well. Okay. Well, my point is that, as you just said, there's no kind of good guy, bad guy. Hector is really sympathetic character, and he's the head of the so-called enemy. But we're not really made to think of them as somehow different. Yeah. Albeit, I've talked with my professor, he thinks Hector is sympathetic, but at the same time he's an enabler for adultery, Paris's adultery with Helen, and taking Helen from Sparta was a kind of violation of the hospitality code, and it's pretty serious, I guess, enough to start a ten-year war for. Well, I, I think, he, unfortunately, um, it is the hospitality code that they're concerned about, not the adultery code. Um, like the stuff where they... Been a, yeah, like... Yeah. Like where they took the stuff instead of, like, I made love to this other man's wife, or rather, I took this other guy's stuff along with her. Right. She is... I mean, that's where adultery becomes a legal issue, that you're taking the property of somebody else. Yeah. And I think at one point, Paris says that I will keep the possessions and Helen, or at the very least, I will give the possessions and keep Helen. I mean, there's some debate over that point. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how is Paris supposed to be seen? On the one hand, he's like a coward, but at points you see him fighting, albeit with an arrow, and that's supposed to be inferior to hand-on-hand combat, but he's still fighting instead of, like, sticking away from the war. And it's almost, I think, also of Agamemnon on the Achaean, or Greek side, where Achilles accuses him of sitting back, and at the same time we see Agamemnon fighting in the war. I wonder what that means. Well, you know, I think you you put your finger on it. It's partly a matter of the rhetoric of the poem. What does the poet say and and show about Paris and Agamemnon? And, yeah, they're fighters. They're not the kind of uh, top-level fighter. They're sort of secondary in some way. Uh, And Paris fighting with a bow and arrow Mm, there is some slight uh, discomfort because to, at least in some generations in Greek warfare, that would be people who can hang out in the back lines and and fight without clashing in the front lines. On the other hand, Odysseus is also a famous fighter with bow and arrow. And Ajax um, as well at one point. And, and Ajax. And so it's not automatically that. It's a, It's a mixture of chosen uh, weaponry and approach and, frankly, character. So Paris the, doesn't really get a chance to prove himself in a way because he's a sort of stand-in for Aphrodite and all of her action. And just when he's going up against Menelaus and it looks like he's maybe going to get the worst of it, um, he's whisked off the field of battle in Book 3 and then plunked back in the bedroom. Uh, and then Helen comes and joins him there. And she says very uh, sarcastically, you know, you're not that great a fighter uh, in in so many words. Um, Basically, almost challenging him to go out and get killed. 
so the poem, I think, keeps it pretty ambiguous. They're not, again, out-and-out cowards, because the poem doesn't do black-and-white contrasts like that, but it indicates that maybe these people are they're not focused in the way that an Achilles would be. Yeah, and in the opening duel between Paris and Menelaus, Menelaus being the husband of Helen, I mean, Paris doesn't exactly fight so great, but Menelaus isn't exactly a good fighter himself, and Menelaus breaks his weaponry, and he decides to sort of cheat, quote-unquote, and drag Paris and throw him to the crowd and win that way. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and and again, this is the subtlety, and I would say the kind of broad range. Uh, The Homeric poet or poets have dozens and dozens of ways of uh, concluding battles and showing where the spears go and describing wounds with medical and people accuracy. Missing, you know, so it's it's just really great visual stuff. I, I would love somebody to make a movie of the Iliad, not like Troy, the movie that we saw some years ago. How do you feel about that movie? I haven't seen that. I liked some certain clips about it, like the Achilles-Hector duel and the prime Achilles scene. I mean, of course, well, the filmmaker yeah. did his variations. Yeah, and I, you know, I think you you cunningly picked the good scenes, but notice there's ones that have humans. Uh, Wolfgang Petersen, who was the director, could not handle the gods. He didn't have a way to handle it, and that's the most difficult thing. So he just cut them out. And, and do you think that hurt it, the film? I, I I think it's just it's not the Iliad. It becomes like a war movie, but it's not the Iliad because the fascinating thing about the Iliad is that. It's kind of three-dimensional chess. The gods are doing their thing, fighting each other, literally sometimes, on one level, and they're manipulating and uh, insinuating things amongst the humans on another level, uh, and humans and gods are communicating with one another, like Thetis and Achilles, her son, so you lose that whole dimension. On the other hand, how would you do it? How would you uh, visually portray gods? Yeah, there's one. There's one bad example. I can think of two examples. Uh, the first bad example is the NBC miniseries of The Odyssey, which is another '90s thing that you should uh, indulge in at some point. You know how they did the gods there? They I, appear okay. like like humans. Maybe you've seen it, but you know Athena has the eyes that kind of glow in the dark, and and they. They bug out and start emitting light, and that's how you know that she's a goddess. It's just really hokey. Yeah, it I just work. I like it better when Athena is like, like portrayed as a human in the Odyssey, for example, and then like flies away, and then everybody else is like, "Yeah, we know that's you." That's kind of like a <laughs> right. nice trolling, in effect. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing, and I have to tell you, this is how I first encountered the Iliad when I was like seven years old, was in a classics illustrated comic version and i still remember this i wasn't allowed to have comic books in the house but i would i would sneak a look at them in the barber shop where where the barber had a whole pile of classics illustrated comics for kids um and and this one i would have to find a copy on ebay but it was wonderful it's the whole Iliad story done in comic book fashion and the gods are in dotted lines wow in the pictures so you know that they're gods because they only dotted lines around them it's one solution, but this is the difference between oral, uh, oral poetry, A-U-R-A-L, that you hear like a radio play, and you can imagine anything. That's one of the beauties of, of sound, 
versus the visual, which actually restricts you. You have to decide, oh, I'm going to show this, I'm not going to show that, how am I going to do the gods, right? It's not yeah. a problem when you've just got an oral, oral art form. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to get as well, since we're going to kind of freewheeling in a sense, mm-hmm. I'm interested in how the Iliad portrays women. I mean, it's mostly a male-focused epic, and the Odyssey is seen as more female-focused by comparison. But there's still plenty of female characters to look into, not just the goddesses like Hera and Aphrodite and Athena, but even human mm-hmm. characters like Helen, Andromache, Briseis, and Hecuba among other female characters as well, even the ones that get bit parts like the women that Achilles sleeps with at the end of Book Nine. Mm-hmm. How do you feel uh, about that? Well, I, I do think that, you know, given the situation, it's remarkable that women appear at all. I mean, if you think of most, uh, say, like World War II war movies, women just aren't there unless they're maybe, you know, waving farewell as the troops get on the train or something. Uh, I think so first of all, this is more natural in terms of traditional warfare in a lot of cultures up until the 17th or 18th century, actually, where the troops go on their expedition, but they also take with them camp followers and cooks and uh, serving women, uh, and they acquire other women. And it, We know this happened in Vietnam, for example, that uh, American and other soldiers acquired kind of temporary girlfriends uh, among the population. Yeah, and it's mentioned, um, alluded to in Full Metal Jacket, the Stanley Kubrick movie I noticed for some that's reason. That's true, yeah. Uh, and it's it's very uh, heartbreaking even in, you remember the other movie, uh, Robin Williams' uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Um, but the point being that it's more natural in effect for traditional uh pre-modern battle to have women around. The fact that you also have a siege and, and there are women in the city and it makes this kind of gender becomes a sort of symptom or a sign of uh, the suspense. What's going to happen when the Greeks conquer Troy? Yeah. Actually, some of the Greek leaders, as you recall, Agamemnon among them, pretty much promised the Greeks that they can go and rape any woman they want. Yeah, Nestor himself says that, like, we won't, like, stop until we get to rape a woman in revenge for Helen. He actually says that. It's really brutal, and it's really, um, I think, symptomatic of the the high stakes. Uh, Let me give you one uh, poetic um, association of that, too. And this was pointed out by uh, my fellow homerist, Michael Nagler, Again, it, it, it hurts me to say, at Berkeley, it, as a Stanford guy, I have to be opposed to Berkeley, but Mike Nagler discovered that uh, there's a whole system of images related to the veil of a woman, the demnon, the, yeah. the thing that the woman wears on her head. That's also the way you can describe the protecting uh, upper wall of the city of Troy. Yeah. So once you take the demnon off either a woman or a city, then it's going to fall and and be ravaged. Uh, and there's whenever either Kredemnon is mentioned, it will summon up associations with the other. So woman will summon up city, city will summon up woman. It helps, of course, in a gender-conscious language like Greek, where there's grammatical gender, that the word for city is, is female. It's polis or polis. Um, so... The the gender angle, I think, is deeply baked into uh, the situation and the poem. And, and then it's remarkable that the woman that we're prepared to hate, Helen, 
um, the cause of all the suffering, is presented in such a, an ambiguous, interesting manner. And even, even sympathetic. She, well, I, I think she's sympathetic because it looks like she is totally under the thumb of Aphrodite. Remember in Book 3 when oh, she yeah. tries to say to Aphrodite, hey, you know, just leave me alone. Go, um, go away. manipulate go. somebody else. Yeah. But go fall in love with somebody else. Um, and be, be a love slave yourself, basically. And Aphrodite says, listen, don't provoke me, or um, I, I'll make you uh, hated among all even more. And, and so Helen is this sort of victim of this huge, overpowering force of Eros that has gotten her and Paris together in the first place. And she doesn't know whether she's to blame for the Trojan War. Sometimes she says that. Other times she basically says, well, what could I do? You know, it's Aphrodite. Yeah. So she's, she really focuses the audience attention. And again, I can't help but think of Wolfgang Peterson and Troy. You know, she's not just the kind of dumb blonde Former model. I think she's uh, quite a weaver of stories as well. In the first moment we see her in the book, we see her weaving in the tales of the Achaean men. In a sense, we also see Achilles singing of it as well. In book nine, there's a beautiful line that shows Achilles playing on his lyre about it. Te ogetumon eterpen aede dara clea andron. In the English mm-hmm. I have here is, with this he was delighting his spirit and singing of the glorious deeds of men. So Achilles and he- Helen are not just these dumb superhero types. They're in fact quite intelligent in some way, insofar as they're able to appreciate stories and make them or and sing of them. But, you know, let's push it even further and say they are kind of images of the poet set within the poetry. Yeah. And it's, again, interesting that you have gender equality there. Both Helen and Achilles, male and female, are weavers of of stories and songs, as you put it so well. Yeah. And, of course, we might not be able to get to every single thing on my list here, but just I want to make a quick brief note before moving on to Achilles, in that some of the sex scenes we see in the Iliad between Paris and Helen and between Hera and Zeus... It's fascinating how Homer himself depicts the present moments, but also makes allusions to the very first time when Paris speaks about how the moment when I first met you and made love with you isn't as great as what it is now. And there is a moment in Book 14 when Hera and Zeus are embracing one another. Homer makes a small line saying that this was almost just like they were doing this for the first time. And, yeah, you know, this is... Uh, I noticed this on my third read. Well, I, I think that's the beauty of this kind of poetry, too. I, I bet among ancient audiences, the same thing would happen. So you can keep finding new depths, uh, and it's built into the art form of, of oral formulaic artistry that you can summon up associations. So it's interesting that the two scenes you mention actually share almost exact language, because not only does Paris say to Helen, oh, gee, this is like our first time, uh, Zeus says to Hera in Book 14, gee, this is like the first time, I feel more arrows for you now than I did when, and then he goes into a list of about five different other women. It doesn't seem like the, doesn't seem like the best sort of seduction uh, come online, but... Um, formulaically, it's the same. So we're It's one of the silliest see... moments in the book, to be honest with you, when Zeus is mentioned, never more like these other ladies I slept right, with. Right, right. 
and uh, and I think you know the Homeric poets also are perfectly aware of the value of uh, comic interludes. Uh, which then just increase the darkness and the seriousness of the other stuff. Yeah, and it's almost like an erotic interlude. It's more erotically charged because it's rare, and in a sense, it's all that more special. It's almost yes. like a portrait of life itself, how it's even exactly. more special when it's so vulnerable to being killed or being speared in what way or enslaved. You, you got it. Yeah. And I want to go to Achilles now, the central hero of the poem, because for me, he's a very enigmatic individual violent, but also very poetic hero. I mean, he speaks in similes at par- at parts, and he has some of the most beautiful similes organized around him. Even though he doesn't appear for all the poem, I think the poem really picks up later on when he comes back to the forefront from book 18 onward. The rest of the poem is great, but I like it best when he's in it, because he's the one who drives the whole poem. His rage drives it. And I think you mentioned in your introduction to Richmond Lattimore's translation in a recent edition that He's just as complex as Odysseus, in a sense. But at the same time, he's more enigmatic, and it's a little harder for us to understand. And the Iliad, in some ways, is more of a character piece than even the Odyssey, even though Aristotle said the Odyssey was more of a character piece. Yes. Uh, I mean, Aristotle is a clever reader, uh, and he certainly knew that Homeric poetry was a world away from the other competing poems, which uh, we don't have anymore, we just have plot summaries, because of its ability to focus uh, on a couple of days or a couple of weeks and a couple of characters. But I I think most people in the 5th century and later B.C. um, favored the Odyssey because it was, as you say, it just seemed more comprehensive, and as the Greeks gradually moved away from constant warfare. It took some time. Um, The Odyssey, I think, probably had more appeal. Also, the Odyssey got into the education system as a kind of poem about young men, uh, good and bad, whereas the Iliad is always slightly alien. But um, Achilles, I I think, you know, as you put it, um, we don't even see him for a good part of the poem. And yet we're always aware that he is like this great unroused um, phenomenon that's going to come up all of a sudden. And we don't quite know when. It's like the, the Halloween effect. All of a sudden somebody's going to burst out uh, and things are going to change completely. Yeah, it's uh, and from, that's what, what happens. Yes, from book one, book nine, I think books. 16, book 17 a bit, book 18, and then onward. I'm just counting how many times Achilles appears in the poem. And Mm -hmm. it's actually not a lot, to some degree. But I think it makes him more special in a sense. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, it's a a really brilliant move on the part of the poet not to talk about the main character, not to show him, because the whole uh, suspense is, is he going to come to battle or not? And, and so we, we kept waiting for that moment. We know probably he will. Um, th- there's a great American movie that captures a little bit of that, um, and it's been noticed by other scholars as well, by Clint Eastwood called Unforgiven. Have you ever seen this? I've Western? seen that, yeah, once. I've yeah. not seen it recently. It it, it, it it plays on some of the same a kind of rhythms where the uh, the killer or hero uh, just has sworn off uh, fighting, 
but the death of his companion is what brings him back into battle. And so we know, given his character, that he's going to get back into battle somehow. We don't exactly know how it's going to work, and we certainly don't know how the mayhem is going to look uh, once it happens. Uh, This is, again, Quentin Tarantino would be a great director of the Iliad. Uh, What happens in Django Unchained at the very end, too, where you get this I'm afraid, very satisfying um, series of just pure um, slaughters and mayhem. The Iliad doesn't do it with, as you said before, this kind of uh, hatred for the enemy. Yeah, it's but it, there is a certain spectacular quality that this one guy can cause such havoc. Yeah, he, but like at the same dog. time, he can... At the same time, Homer can underscore some of the brutality behind it when Achilles is killing this teenage boy, Lycaon, whom he previously kidnapped and sold for slavery, and then Lycaon got back into the battle and he's going to be killed, and Lycaon is like pleading for mercy, and Achilles is saying, I used to sell you people in the past, but now I'm not going to save anybody, I'm going to kill you all, least of all, especially the sons of Priam, in avenging Patroclus. And he just yeah. kills him. And of course he kills Hector and he says, as between lions and men, there can be no covenant between us. And so that's basically how Achilles is. And in some ways I kind of find him likable and in some ways even more so than Odysseus, to be honest with you. Because Achilles strikes me for the most part as much more honest and much less authoritarian than Odysseus is. Because Odysseus is like, we all need to rally around one king and I'll beat up anybody who disagrees with me. And Odysseus does beat up Thersites, but and Achilles himself is a kind of rebel, a kind of existential person in a way, at least to yeah. our eyes. You know, I think in the terms of the Iliad, um, that's the opposition. It's Achilles who is just straightforward, who uh, you know says what he thinks and just refuses to participate in the system. He is a kind of existential. I mean, he's kind of a hero. magical person in that way as well, because he has magic horses and so much more. Yeah, although we know they're not going to help him. That's the other, the flip side of the Iliad, and another brilliant thing is that you don't see the death of Achilles. You, you don't see the Trojan horse, you don't see the fall of Troy. All of the other Troy story stuff is just in suspense. We know how Achilles is going to die, because it's said in the poem, right? Um, we're, we're told that he's going to die at the Skian gates, shot by Paris and Apollo. Uh, but we don't see that. What we do see is the death of Patroclus, which is like a preview of the death of Achilles. And and so brilliantly, it's another one of these suspense things that the poem relies on the audience kind of knowing what's going to happen, and therefore you don't have to show it. Nice. Yeah. Excuse me. And interestingly, Achilles and Hector, when you contrast them, I said I preferred Achilles more, though many readers seem to prefer Hector, and understandably so, because Hector seems to be the more moral family guy and defending the civilians, whereas Achilles is killing civilians by contrast, and even in taking the women and enslaving them and killing whole families when he kills Andromache's whole family. Yes. Uh, Hector, certainly, you know, there's even a, a book by uh, Jamie Redfield from Chicago called Nature and Culture in the Iliad, The Tragedy of Hector. So he reads the poem as basically, you know, the choices that are faced by this family guy who, who can't defend his city properly because he's just not Achilles, but he's the one who represents civilization and peace and settlement. Um so certainly there is that factor 
on the other hand, you, you know, if you wanted to be a fighter, you're going to want to be Achilles. Um, so it's like there's a generational divide um, embedded in the poem, too. You can imagine an audience of ancient Greek guys of 18 years old uh, wanting to emulate Achilles, whereas the 35-year-olds or the 40-year-olds might perfectly uh, prefer to be Hector. Yeah. The way things change in one's own life in those 20 or so years, um, yet another reason why the poem just appeals. Yeah. And Achilles isn't just a brute warrior like he was in a lot of later tradition. I think he can also be very thoughtful, as I mentioned, and even compassionate at the very end. And even to some extent before he, like he was before Patroclus got killed. And he's welcoming Priam, he's like a good host, he knows how to organize games, he's a good gentleman. If not by medieval Christian standards, and certainly by ancient Greek standards, he's quite a gentlemanly person. And, and, and he's a wonderful speaker. Oh, yes. And, and this is what makes him like the poet, again, as I've tried to show in various uh, books and articles. He, the, the one most memorable speech in the entire poem, I, I, I think you might agree, there's yeah. a lot of memorable speeches, uh, and yet another wonderful feature of the poetry is that it's, it's live, it's dramatic, it's got uh, 60% is direct speech. He was like the Shakespeare the of the ancient Greeks. Homer is perfect. Yeah, because it's it's can be staged immediately. That's why you know to do the movie, all you have to do is basically use the poem as a script uh, and figure out the gods. But the, the, in Book Nine, in his great uh, refusal speech, um, you know that speech alone is the sort of height of poetic um, thinking and imagery and rhetoric. In, in, and the Homeric poet put himself out there in the figure of Achilles, so the two of them kind of come together. So this is a poet hero. Yeah. I want to close up slowly, but I want to talk about what are your favorite translations of the Iliad? I liked Richmond Lattimore's translation a lot, even though it can be a bit clunky at times. I also like Carolyn Alexander's translation. She's apparently the first woman to translate it into English. I'm reading that now, and it's quite brilliant so far. I'm also you hearing know, that. Yeah, go ahead. And I'm also hearing that Emily Wilson, a University of Pennsylvania professor who recently translated the Odyssey in iambic pentameter, will be doing the Iliad, and it will come out in a few years. Actually, I'm interested in seeing how she applies her iambic pentameter, which I like for the Odyssey to the Iliad. I would be interested in reading that. And I've read bits of the Elizabethan translator George Chapman. I think he's a bit heavy, but I also love his stuff as well. And the great thing is, you don't have to choose. I, you know, I would have to choose if I assigned the text to a class. I'd have to pick one translation, but everybody can have access to everything these days, and, you know, you can live with ten different translations. So I, I like your your Catholic small-c appreciation of all of them. Um I have to say, starting early, early, Chapman is still a, a wonderful kind of Jacobean, um, vivid translation. Yes. And, of course, we read it through the lens of uh, Keats uh, on first looking into Chapman's Homer. Um, it was a, a, just a mind-blowing experience for the romantic poet Keats. As and well. a lot of others who got a hand and, on and Chapman's. Many, yeah, so. uh, even though, you know, for the... 18th century, it was thought of as rude and, and barbaric and, and clunky in other ways. 
the 19th century uh, romantics rediscovered those kind of aesthetic uh, feelings. Um, then there's Pope. I have to say Pope I, I admire, but I don't like. Fair uh, point. Pope, I think he rhymes too much. Well, it, it's so elegant. He's so the opposite of uh, the kind of folk poetic uh, basis of Homeric language. And, uh, y- you know, it's like squeezing Homer into a wig uh, and, and a uh, corset or something. Um, but it, it still is admirable for just poetic skill. Uh, then there are a bunch of forgotten 19th century translations. I allude to some of them in my notes there to uh, the Iliad um, by people like William Morris, and um, I, I think even Matthew Arnold tried his hand at some. Matthew Arnold's uh, great uh, essay on translating Homer, I think, still strikes the right note. And he's reacting against some of the excesses of the 19th century, where they try to go overboard and make it sound almost like a ballad. uh, Beowulf. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And then when you get into the 20th century, uh, for a while people give up, it seems, in the early 20th century, a lot of prose translations. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, unbelievably, translated the Odyssey, not the Iliad, um, into a very vigorous prose. Um, and, and he had lived in way like a Homeric hero, so he can handle a lot of it from real experience. Uh, so this is to say that some prose translations are also worth looking at. And then when you come to the later 20th century, what happened, of course, is that it, thanks to courses in general education in Columbia and Harvard and all kinds of other U.S. universities and the GI Bill, there were lots of people who all of a sudden needed these poems in English, and a huge market for paperbacks. Um, I happen to have associations, and therefore, you know, Robert uh, Fitzgerald, uh, having been one of my teachers, I turned to his uh, Iliad and Odyssey. I remember him when the Iliad first came out, uh, reading it to his class. I was in his class. Um, Robert Fagels uh, was my uh, colleague for many years at Princeton. I remember talking to him a number of times about choices in translating. Um, he does things that I don't appreciate when it comes to um, repetition of adjectives. Where he'll try to capture a Greek adjective with two English adjectives, just because he he's aware of all of the multiplicity and he needs to get it in there, but it it, it delays the effect. Uh, Stanley Lombardo, uh, two translations out in Hackett paperbacks, very hard-bitten kind of uh, stripped-down late 20th century language. But he's a real poet, and and they are powerful in many ways. Um, And then, of course, Lattimore from the 50s. The, The wonderful thing is every Greek line is translated by one English line. And I think line that's by line. kind of the way to do it, in my opinion. Emily Wilson also does that for her Odyssey, translating according to the exact number of lines. And I think some recent translators have been doing that, and I think that may be the way to do it. Well, I think it is a challenge, and uh, it forces you into making decisions and to being concise. Uh, what I've read of Emily Wilson, and I haven't sat down and read the whole thing through, frankly. I haven't had time uh, to read English uh, as I've been teaching Greek. But, uh, you know, I'll reward myself this summer. She's obviously very clever at uh, handling uh, 
some of the adjectives, and uh, I, I get the feel that there's a real poetic consciousness there. I, I think in other places it's uh, perhaps not as tight as it could be. Uh, and so I would look forward to her Iliad as well. Caroline Alexander, I, uh, I again haven't sat down and read straight through, but the, the large chunks that I've read, I, again, you know, very competent. I don't think she's up to the level of Lattimore. Yeah. And so you mentioned a while ago that the Iliad was a bit alien compared to the Odyssey, and the Odyssey seems to be more influential, especially when you think of much later literature, including James Joyce's Ulysses, among other things, and Ezra Pound's Cantos. But wouldn't you say the Iliad has its own element of influence over Western literature in a way that seems to be somewhat less credited? Yeah, I think it's perhaps a less obvious way. Um it's hard to think as, you know, you mentioned Joyce's Ulysses, which is an, a, a, an overt uh, allusion back through the, the so-called mythic method that he used. Um, and it's ironic because, of course, it's not an epic journey. It's uh, Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus finding each other uh, in the course of one day in Dublin. Um, the Iliad, the best, I think, a sort of offshoot that I know is Omiros by Derek Walcott, um, the Nobel Prize winning poet, who actually combines both an Odyssey and an Iliad in a story about his native island of San Lucia uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, I, I would say, you know, this is a huge topic too, that the Iliad might have had more effect via tragedy. Um, yeah. Aristotle thinks that tragedy is basically owes its uh, existence to the model of uh, Homer and specifically the Iliad, whereas comedy owes its existence to the model of the Odyssey. Uh, and then through tragedy, we ultimately get things like opera, um, thanks to uh, Monteverdi and the, the rediscovery of Greek tragedy in the Renaissance. And, and finally, I would say uh, modern drama, so they, they have two very different pathways. The Iliad uh, ends up being a dramatic thing rather than an epic thing. But of course, the other one, which we've been talking about, is uh, epic blockbuster movies starring heroes. And, and ultimately, I think they owe something to the Iliad yeah. by way of all of the other poems you mentioned, uh, Aeneid and Tasso and the rest. Yeah, and especially... Leo Tolstoy can be an Iliad-influenced writer, especially in War and Peace, and also his last novella, Haji Murad, which is one of the most brilliant things he wrote, by the way, because they depict warriors and war in this very clear way that Homer also depicts it in. And before I close this episode, I want to ask, for those who would like to learn ancient Greek, what would you advise? Uh, well, first of all, do it, and there's no better time, and it doesn't matter how old or young you are, uh, there are lots of online uh, aids. The, I, I would just name uh, one, which is Perseus, P-E-R-S-E-U-S. You know, uh, yeah. run out of Tufts, Tufts um, University. You can uh, click on every word and find out its uh, grammatical, morphological, syntactical qualities. Uh, and then a good book to accompany that, also freely available, I believe, now in Google Books, is Clyde Farr, P-H-A-R-R, where he um, taught Greek, starting with Homer. Most courses in ancient Greek start with 
the fifth century classical authors like Plato or, or Sophocles uh, or Euripides. But he, he thought, let's start with Homer. And if you, if you carefully study that a page or so a day, you can be reading Homer within, I would say, four or five months. Nice. Um, the good thing about Homer is that it repeats so much that you get used to it pretty quickly and you learn things that you can just kind of instantly scan a line and know what it says because you've seen it ten times before. And you, and from there you could potentially learn the Greek that Aeschylus and Sophocles and even the New Testament is written in, you believe? Yes. You nice. know, it, it's it, it's all Greek all the way down. There's going to be some minor dialect changes, uh, but you'll be able to understand historically... Um, the Athenian Greek of the 5th century, if you learn uh, Homeric Greek, uh, because you'll see some of the um, preforms of the later contracted forms that you get in, say, classical Greek. Nice. So, so I hope your listeners go for it, and, uh, you know, it's a lifetime investment. Thank you so much. And I just want to thank, thank you, you for appearing on this show. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Hopefully, in well, the future. I, I appreciate your love of the poem and uh, your uh, incisive knowledge of it. It's uh, impressive and wonderful. And how is my Greek so far? I mean, could it be better? Of course, I, I need to learn it. I, I think it's fine. You know, just keep uh, reading large segments aloud every day. Uh, your rhythm is fine. And what none of us find easy to do is uh, the pitch accent. Uh, even I, after. 40 years of doing this stuff, find it hard to replicate a pitch accent because we don't have a pitch-based language. We have a stress-based nice. language. How do you think I did with that? It, 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 I think that, you know, you were hitting the pitches in such a way that they stood out. So I think that was uh, a, a, a good example. Thank you. So I'm glad to have talked with you. I will see you again shortly. And until next time, this has been The Letter of Liberty, a podcast about literature, liberty, news, politics, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.